Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Today's guest is Craig Sager Jr. Welcome into another episode of the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. An important show today as we welcome in Craig Sager Jr., the son of legendary NBA sideline reporter Craig Sager, who sadly passed away at the age of 65 last December. A graduate of Northwestern, Craig Sager's career spanned five decades and countless events from the Olympics, spring training baseball, to running onto the field to capture the moment Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run. On that day, he wore a trench coat and carried a tape recorder, and for so long we've seen him on NBA sidelines donning a colourful suit bright enough to shut out any rainbow, questions sharp enough to get to the heart of the story. Sager was diagnosed with leukaemia in 2014 and went through multiple courses of treatment before returning to the game nearly one year later, before the illness tragically returned for a second time. Resilient and a lifer when it comes to positivity, Sager juggled treatment and his broadcasting work, the NBA his true love amidst all the hospital visits. I'm so glad that Craig Sager Jr. agreed to do this interview and I hope that it can be an important message for every single person out there. My thanks to him again for coming onto the show. It's really appreciated. It's emotional, it's honest, and it's really important. Here's Craig Sager Jr. Very happy to say that joining me from Atlanta, where he, amongst other things, covers sports, Craig Sager Jr. is on the US Sports Podcast. Craig, thank you very much for coming on. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me across the pond. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you know about the UK, first of all? Let's, let's start there. Uh, that I am a very, a very big fan of the language you guys use. I like <laughs> the way you uh, can kind of detail situations a lot better than my American counterparts, and I just enjoy um, all the people that have come over. I just like picking their brains and learning new ways to describe situations and politely insult people. <laughs> what you're saying is you want this accent, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel the other way as well. I think an, 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 a different accent in another country seems to work wonders. Yeah, but I, I understand our accents aren't anything impressive over here. <laughs> well, tell us about the work you're doing in Atlanta. I'm assuming it's a busy time for you. The Falcons are headed to Super Bowl 51. Yes, it's actually... I, I really don't even know how to describe what's been going on because this is my fifth year working with the Falcons, and we've had some good teams during that time. We've also had some bad ones, but this one's just completely different. We have a, a young team, a young defense. Uh, the upcoming NFL draft is heavy with defensive talent, so we'll be in a position to add even more pieces to it. And really, our offense hasn't been stopped this entire season there's not really any game film to go by where you can say this worked or this didn't this team seems to be getting better each time they hit the field 
and I just couldn't believe uh, how much they dominated the Packers. And yes, the Packers have had their injuries, and we can talk about that. And the Falcons are definitely the healthiest they have been in my five years of covering them. But this team is just really impressive, and they're flying the ball to the ball in defense. They're causing turnovers. Matt Ryan's thrown. I think 18 touchdowns, zero interceptions the last four games. So he's on fire, and it's just an exciting time. And I haven't seen this much excitement in Atlanta, I think, since we got the Olympic bid in the early 90s. And it's kind of the same sort of thing right now because we have two new stadiums being built. Uh, The the city seems to be uh, on the climb again, and we're excited here. Yeah, your quarterback, Matt Ryan, is slated to win the MVP award. Who do you think is the best quarterback right now, Tom Brady or Matt Ryan? I mean, I think you got to go with Tom Brady just because I think, what is this, his seventh Super Bowl, and he just seems to always get it done no matter who he's throwing to. But this season, I mean, you can't take anything away from what Matt Ryan's done because it's been phenomenal. He threw touchdowns at 13 different guys this season through multiple touchdowns to 10 different guys, both things that we've never seen happen in the NFL to see that many guys catching touchdown passes. And our offense is really, uh, I think, changing the game in a way to have your primary receiver, to have a, a young but also experienced offensive line. And then just to have speed guys all over the place with these backup receivers, these slot guys and the way this staff has come together with uh, head coach Dan Quinn, pulling Kyle Shanahan, pulling all these coaches that have found success in other places, I think that was huge because they've been able to take guys that they might have coached when they were with the Cleveland Browns or with the Redskins and brought them here. And we've kind of built this team around guys that we didn't necessarily have to outbid teams and hurt our salary cap it's kind of the coaches knew who they wanted who was out there they brought him in and I think you got to give a lot of this team success to just the uh, the coaching staff's ability to be on the same page and share the same vision will you be going to Houston yes I will I have not booked my uh, plane tickets or anything like that yet I actually have to MC an event tonight so I've Focus on that because that's going to be it's going to be interesting. But uh, I will definitely get all those travel arrangements, and that's one of the things that is. I'm trying to think of the right word. It's not fortunate because it's a rough situation. But my dad was uh, for the three years he was battling leukemia. He was out in Houston at MD Anderson, which is the number one cancer treatment number one hospital in the world and so I was out in Houston a lot so I know there's a lot of uh, places I'll be able to look at to stay and hopefully have a not only just a memorable experience but also a convenient and fun time. Well Craig I really appreciate you talking uh, taking the time to talk with me during such a difficult time for you and your family and I wanted to first of all pass on to you and everyone around you my sincerest condolences I'm sure as well, the NBA community here in the UK is is doing the same. Yeah, it's definitely a tough time, but I think uh, my family realizes that in a lot of ways we were lucky. For one, uh, my dad's leukemia diagnosis, it's usually a three to six month 
uh, span. And he had me as a perfect match to give him two transplants. So that's something that doesn't happen a lot. That's a 2% chance of finding a match. I think Europe has a much larger bank too. And, uh, but once again, it's, it's hard to have someone that you can just say, we need you to come do this right now because otherwise he's skyrocketing to a 70% leukemia blast. And if we don't do it in the next week, uh, he's, he's not going to make it. So he got lucky in that sense, then just to have the best treatment in the world. So I think perspective is a healthy, um, a healthy healing thing, just to know that you had it better off than a lot of other families. And you just look for ways to uh, figure out how to raise the right, right kind of awareness, because I gave my dad two transplants. I watched him do three bone marrow transplants in total. I saw him do 70 different chemos over this span, and I still don't quite understand the disease. And I think that this next generation, uh, it's going to be a torch that needs to be passed. And the torch needs to be shining brighter each time. And this generation has to sit there and ask themselves if they want a better chance when they're 60. And it's time to just push the pedal to the floor and try to do as much as we can to start educating people on what these diseases actually are because the treatments might not come from just pouring money into cancer research. It might come from the next MRI machine that can make uh, just make the testing process easier. So I think that in general, we just have to approach it as a team mindset and hopefully get people on board and serious to not only want to beat cancer, but stop looking at it from the aspect of just being afraid or being some nasty word and actually look at the science of it and what we can do. Well, I admire you for having that mindset. And I wanted this to be really, I hope this would be a celebration of your father, Craig Sager. And, and reading about his life, it's not, it's not too hard to come up with things to talk about. Um, well, most know him for the sideline reporting and the colorful suits at NBA games, but we should really start with his time at Northwestern. Um, what did he tell you about his burgeoning football career back in college? Oh, man. <laughs> well, he just always wanted to be around the action. He loved sports so much. And my, his father was actually a World War II U.S. correspondent and did a bunch of radio work and writing. So he was more of a serious journalist. And I, not only do not, people not know that, but I don't think anyone realizes that. So he kind of raised my dad with the mindset where you need to be a serious journalist. Don't wear these crazy outfits. People aren't going to take you serious. But my dad had a different mindset. He wanted to have fun with it. He thought that was what sold. That's what people want is just a sports environment where sports can be stressful uh, for the players, for the coaches, for the fans. It has the whole spectrum of emotion. But I think the thing with my dad was he just showed up and had fun. And so in college, he tried to walk on the football team. He lasted, uh, I think, a month and had double amnesia on special teams and so he quit that then walked on uh the basketball team which they had a freshman team and a varsity team at that at that point in time and so then once that ended they i think they combined it to a varsity team so then he 
didn't make the team. And so he said, you know what, I'm just going to, I want to be around the team. I want to travel with the team. So he signed up to be the mascot. So he was Willie the Wildcats. Uh-huh. And I got to travel with the football team. And I just think that just being on the sidelines, being around the game, he really fed off the energy his entire life. And it didn't matter if he was going to the finals to cover it, going to the Olympics or just going to a regular scheduled spring baseball game. Uh, there's nothing he loved more than being around the people and just celebrating a day at the ballpark or a day at the arena. And now apparently when he was the Wildcat mascot that you mentioned there, there was a particular game at Ohio State that kind of inaugurated him with the players. Yes, he. Uh, it was a major upset. Northwestern doesn't beat Ohio State that often. And before that, the mascot never really traveled with the team. And so afterwards, my dad was taunting a bunch of the Buckeyes players and who knows what else he was doing. I'm sure he was dancing around in that costume, but they started to push him around on the field and kind of gang up on him, and the players stood up for him. And I think just the excitement he brought and just his personality, they wanted to have him around more, and so he was the first mascot that got to travel with the team there. So he uh, he made that his own too. And that's just what – What's interesting when I look at his career, um, I really think that in a way he almost just did what he wanted all the time. And I think he created his dream job. That His job wasn't something you apply for. There's sideline positions, but the way he did it was so much different. And just from the outfits he, he wore that would evolve over time, I think he was just a guy that was always trying to get better always looking for more excitement, always looking for the story, always looking to connect with more people. And, I mean, every year I knew him, it's just his life seemed to get bigger and bigger by the year. I'm talking about uh, doing what you want to do. Uh, my favorite story of your dad, um, when he was a cub reporter for a local radio station in Florida out of college, and he's able to get on a flight to Atlanta and cover Hank Aaron's historic 715th home run game. He can't get a spot in the press box, so he's camped out on the first base line. Aaron hits the home run, and your dad is at home plate with a trench coat and a tape recorder as Aaron trots home. And What, what did he tell you about that moment? Because I think that, <laughs> particularly the last couple of weeks, has really been etched in everyone's minds. Yeah, it's an incredible story. His, he always looked for an opportunity on how to how to get his foot in the door somewhere. And so his little radio station he was working for in Sarasota, Florida was an affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. And Hank Aaron opened the season a couple home runs short of the record. And so it was something he had thought about all off season. And when that time came and he, they went back to Atlanta, he told his boss, I'm going to this game and covering it. He, he got a credential, but not an on the field media credential he had to go where everyone else was by the Braves dugout on first baseline he only had a like photography credential so he that's why he was the only one kind of with a radio equipment on the third base side because they the photographers wanted a picture of him swinging obviously from that angle and so when he rounded third I mean he had his who knows where he bought that thing, maybe Radio Shack or something, but he had his recorder and just went for it. And that's something uh, he always did. I've never 
met someone with that sort of confidence. And I think that when you look at his approach when he had cancer and uh, just all the ups and downs he had with that, I think it just validates kind of the mindset he had his entire life, which was, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to stick my microphone out there and ask questions later. Just do what feels right in the moment. And I can honestly say he is someone that always bet on himself. Uh, Someone else that got some of the diagnoses he got might have said, you know what, I need to slow down my life. I need to take it easy for a bit. But he would double down. He would speed it up and move it faster. And he was just confident that if you just believe that you want to live a full life, if you want, if you believe that you want to learn from other people and just enjoy each day, I don't think you really need anything else. You don't have to feel like you're unfit to do something. And so his confidence was something that drove him every single day to fearlessly do anything. And he never wanted to miss out on an opportunity just because he was scared to. You forget about the hair as well on that day with the Hank Aaron home run. He, your dad's hair looked pretty good. And you've got to look pretty good when you know that video is going to be surfaced <laughs> rather a lot down the years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's one of the most underrated things about him. He has always had excellent hair. I think his, <laughs> his clothes uh, might have overshadowed it a lot of the time. But even when he was, he would get sick, uh, he would lose his hair. But as soon as he'd get back on the swing, it'd be, be right back. I mean, even at the ESPYs, I don't know how you do 70 different chemos and still have a full head of hair. And people always thought it was a toupee all those years, and I tried to tell them it's not. So he had that he had that Beatles haircut going uh, <laughs> back in the 70s for that home run for sure. How were his sailing skills? Because I, I heard uh, we all talk about the radio station, but I heard he was also a sailing instructor and a bouncer at Big Daddy's in Florida. I have no idea what Big Daddy's <laughs> is, by the way. I don't know if he was uh, more interested in being good at it or just uh, probably meeting a lot of girls and taking them sailing. So (laughs) he never talked uh, too much about how much he sailed. He normally just told me stories of girls he would meet and all those shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it was broadcasting um, Deion Sanders' Pop Warner games when the the guy was 12 years old or or working the NBA sideline, how much did Craig's approach, your dad's approach to covering sports change over the years? I mean, I, it, honestly, it stayed the same. I've never, I always thought that people had two sides to them. They would go to work and then they would come home and you kind of had to live a different life. But with him, every single day was the exact same. He would try to pack as much, as much into the day as possible. And to the point where I only sat down and ate dinner with my family at home one time my entire life. And I don't even remember it. I just know it happened once. When he would come home, we would go to whatever game was going on. It was the same thing. He'd walk around, talk to all the players. And he was always trying to make connections with people and learn from them. And just he had such a hungry mind and that's one of the approaches he kept with them into the NBA. Instead of talking to the, to the star player, every game, he would go to the practices and the shoot arounds and talk to the bench players and kind of 
and try to get a sense of what's the pulse of this team. What have they been working on? Where if you talk to the star player, you got to, there's other reporters there and everyone seems to be asking the same sort of questions and he can't really say what's going on. And I think he just gained this trust um, where he wanted to be positive in his reporting and he wanted to promote the game. And I think that his impact on basketball, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great players, a lot of great coaches, but I think just when you think of the NBA and, the type of atmosphere uh, every arena wants. I think my dad just embodied it. Was absolutely uh, ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Where do you think the fascination for colorful suits began, and where where did it begin? I'm sure you know. Well, it began in in high school. I think he wanted to. They said he had to wear a navy or black suit for the yearbook and he had this electric blue blazer that he really liked and he convinced them somehow that it was navy and they let him wear it and so he was the only one in the yearbook not wearing it so i that's the first instance i knew but if you looked at his in the book we have some pictures of when he first sent out his audition reels and he's wearing the sear suckered suits and and stripes and they told him you have to tone it down and then when he got a job with, with CNN Sports and Turner uh, back in the early 80s, he started out pretty tame and maybe had a colorful tie, but it just kept evolving. And a lot of people would ask me about his outfits, like, did you see what he was wearing last night? And I would always tell him, it's, it's never what he's wearing that night that I think about it's always what is he gonna wear next because he was always pushing the boundaries and always looking for new ways to to match things and new patterns to introduce and by the end I mean I know a lot of people saw that SB suit which was unbelievable I don't know who wears a <laughs> pure yellow dress shirt and makes it work but I mean, he wasn't even buying his clothes in clothing stores. He was in Little Havana in Miami and would just go to a fabric store and see something and say, this this suit is going to be perfect for, for this game. And then he would, once he had that pattern, he would go around and just talk to his guy in Houston who makes ties and say, this is my suit. Like, what can we do here? Can we add jewels to it? And, he had such a attention to detail and I think his clothes were something that just put him in the mindset and really uh, allowed him to feel connected and plugged into his environment when everyone else is tweeting and going by the trend, the trends and all that. He's just someone that wants to bring the excitement from that arena to the audience and I think that's something that people realized about his outfits and his style and the way he approached his job and the joy he had with it was he he wanted to celebrate the atmosphere. But what about outside the outside the court, outside the work environment, Craig? Did did he do it at dinner? Did he do it when you went out together? What was it was it just strictly <laughs> basketball? Not always. He was a when it's not game day, he he would still wear bright colors, but 
I mean, he's the only guy I knew that would wear like tennis shoes. It, like only grown man that would wear tennis shoes with like a nice suit. Mm. And so it was always kind of odd to me, but I mean, he always tries to stand out and he always did. And what always impressed me about him was how he could just command a room. I've never met someone that no matter what situation they're in, you could be in a room of, you could be at a ball with a bunch of astrophysicists or at a fraternity party. And no matter what, he was going to go in that room and he was going to somehow be the center of attention and everyone was going to talk to him. He was going to set the mood. And so that's why his nickname was the ringleader with all his friends. And he's just a guy that you follow and he somehow just creates experience after experience. And um, it's never a dull moment and just a lot of fun for sure. (laughs) Was he or yourself ever worried that the suits would kind of overstate the fact that his questions were actually very good did you think that that was ever going to be a hindrance to his actual what he was actually there to do it's definitely something i know i mean i thought about it i know he thought about it but the more he thought about it i think the more he realized that he was he had to own it he had to look past it wear it and still write it he had to make it fun and kind of direct it in a way to where if he's in Miami, he's going to wear a certain color scheme. Like if he's in Detroit, he's not going to wear that color scheme. So I think he tried to justify his eccentric suits based on just the fact that he was really uh, putting thought into it and trying to um, just signify the moment. And, I think that's something that he definitely thought about, but it's also one of the reasons he did dress like that. Well, he refused to be seen in the same suit twice. So the key question here is, did you ever try one of those bad boys on and and where did they all end up? That's a good question. I'm still trying to figure out where they're all going to end up. Um, Back in the day, he used used to just donate them to most ministries or or Goodwill or some of the local... um, housing shelters and so people would i don't know what people are going to do with like a green suit but he would just give them away and he always tried to get me to dress like him he would say junior you got to wear this suit and it would just be ridiculous i said dad there can't be two of us (laughs) like i can't walk around dressed like you that's just not going to work people are going to think i'm an idiot but i tried to kind of develop my own style and I don't know what we're going to do with it. He's got a bunch of great individual pieces. He was two inches taller than me and a little bigger. So I would need a hell of a tailor, but uh, there's definitely some suits that mean a lot to me and some of my favorite jackets that he had on. And obviously we're going to try to raise a bunch of money with the rest with a bunch of charities coming up and auctions where we can, put a suit up for for a bid and just make some easy money to give to uh, cancer research and patients that need it. We're talking to Craig Sager Jr. on the U.S. Sports Podcast. Craig, watching your dad's most memorable moments, and and everyone has to go and watch them, um, when he asked a question, it was always thoughtful. It, It was bound to provoke something. 
But what sparks me is when the camera crossed to Craig, you'd see the pink blazer or the red shoes and socks, and he's just so deadpan, and then he goes straight to the question, and whether it's Chris Paul saying, you know, <laughs> Easter's over, or Steve Nash wiping his nose on Craig's pocket square, your father always had a subtle rebuttal. You know, he, when Kevin Garnett said he can't just grab something and bring it back to the 70s, your dad responded by saying to KG that you're trying to bring back the glory days of the Celtics. There was a, it was always an amazing reaction. It, yes, he always had something to to kind of shield himself. And did he plan that? It's kind of just the way he was. I mean, he his step my stepmom, for instance, she's closer to my age than she was to him, and before anyone can say anything, he would own that. He would, he would brag about it. He would. So any possible thing you could say to him, like I remember one time I was, uh, we were in Chicago and he was wearing an orange suit and they were like, what are you wearing that orange for? Not red. And he said, no, this is Chicago bears orange. And they're like, no, it's awful. It's awful. And they're like, what? He's like, well, actually I got it in Chicago. And they're like, BS. No, you didn't. And sure enough, he showed them. <laughs> yep. Got it in Chicago. And he just was so good at deflecting, uh, any insults in <laughs> or any, uh, attention. And I, it, it really was masterful to watch. I've, I've never met someone that can, own situations like he could and it wasn't just on the sidelines uh we've been for instance uh, in 1999 we were in puerto rico playing golf and i went home two days early and he called me from puerto rico and asked if i wanted him to catch iguanas to bring back to georgia to have his pets and i told him absolutely not like, why would you bring iguanas back from Puerto Rico? They want to live in Puerto Rico, not Georgia. Well, sure enough, we get to the airport, and he has two burlap sacks with a female iguana and a male iguana, where he literally put iguanas in his carry-on bag <laughs> and flew like two and a half hours with them, with live iguanas, back to the United States. And so... I don't know any other human that would a want to do that, but B would have the confidence that they aren't going to get loose or aren't going to make noise or get them in trouble and have them pay a $10,000 fine. So there was just something about his fearlessness that he wasn't going to get caught. And obviously we saw that with him and cancer. He denied the disease mentally for as long as he could. I was told he was, he had, two weeks to live five different times. And every time he said, no, we're going to try something different. We're going to try this 14 straight days of 24 hour chemo. And I'm going to make it back to the sidelines again. And sure enough, he did. And it just, obviously it, it just gets to the point where you can't do it anymore, but he never took a break his entire life. He never backed down from anything and he did what he wanted. And I've never, I just I can't imagine living a fuller life than he did. And you you cover sports yourself, Craig. What did he teach you about how to ask questions? He really didn't teach me much about that. Uh, what he did teach me was when you go to a city 
read the local newspapers because they're going to give you the real information. He kind of he taught me how to get the information, not necessarily ways to uh, have that type of skills that he has, where he can make a make questions conversational. I mean, that's he really did um, have a gift when it came to that. But I think what he taught me now, though, like when I go to cover a game, it amazes me that so many reporters will they'll sit in the press box the whole game and just sit there after a first down or a third down and say, oh, we should have done this, or they'll just tweet out the stats as if anyone cares about your your tweets about what they're watching. And so when I go to a game, I try to show people the environment with my phone. I try to take videos of who's at the game, what celebrities are there, uh, what are the players doing before they get out to the field, what are they doing in the tunnel? that's what people want to see. And I think that's what my dad taught me is fans want the experience. They don't want these stats. They don't want the sports business side. I got in a huge argument with Darren Ravel <laughs> last night on Twitter, being a complete sports nerd after the Falcons make it to the Super Bowl, talking about how we don't have a good of a fan base as the other four teams and how we aren't going to draw as many, as many ticket sales. My dad would say the same thing I say. What does that have to do with anything? The game's played on the field. They won. They made it through the Super Bowl. Why are you even talking about that? And I think that he just taught me to see the game as a game and enjoy the atmosphere of it and bring that to the people, not these, not the business. That's not why you're you're in sports media and that's not what I, why I am I'm in it because I enjoy sports I enjoy the interactions with the fans and I enjoy all the times I went to the the games with my dad and walked around to the different levels uh, mingled with the people met fans talked to fans heard their stories about how long they've been coming to games what their favorite games are and I just think that's what's important how would you describe the relationship your dad had with Greg Popovich Wow. Um, it got off to an interesting start. I know they, uh, one of the first times they really interacted was when my dad did an injury, injury report, I think, on Tony Parker that Popovich didn't want him to do. And Popovich said, that's it. I'm never talking to you guys again. Like, this is ridiculous, Craig. And he was really mad. And so my dad tried to apologize to him. didn't work then wrote him a handwritten note apologizing. And then that kind of was the start of them building sort of a bond and a trust together. And then they went out to the Olympics when they were there in the pre-qualifying and would hang out a little more. Uh, Greg Popovich was a West Point grad, so they would talk about that and how my dad wanted to go there, all that. And I think as it evolved um, – Popovich is the guy that's going to leave behind an even bigger legacy to the game of basketball. And it's not because he's some grumpy guy. It's because he's one of the greatest coaches of all time, and he runs an organization like the Spurs in a way that you have to be a positive leader to do that. I mean, it might be the best organization in sports all around. And 
I just think that they're two people that want to leave a legacy that um, just make the game of basketball better, and they both respect that about each other. I think one of the most honorable things you did after your dad was diagnosed originally was to interview Popovich, as your father had done so many times. Between the third and fourth quarters, it was, of the 2014 playoff series between the Mavericks and the Spurs, was it important for you to do that? When Did TNT approach you to do it, and, and how important was it for you to do that? Yeah, it was unbelievable because I found out on Thursday that my dad had leukemia, and then I went to visit him the first day of his treatment on Friday, and about 10 minutes into it, I got pulled outside by vice president of Turner uh, Talent, and she said, how would you like to go to San Antonio tomorrow and do this sit-down pregame interview on Sunday? And I was shocked because as soon as my dad got sick, honestly, him missing the playoffs scared me more than the leukemia because I knew that meant more to him. Missing the playoffs was the worst possible news he could have gotten. I mean, that's his favorite time of the year, 40 games and 40 nights, just nonstop fun. And um, I I really wanted to do something to help, but I didn't know what it could be. And then when they asked me, I was absolutely shocked. Um, it was obviously a dream come true. And then when I went out there, we were getting ready to do the sit-down interview, and he called me in his office, gave me a handwritten note to give my dad, which – was kind of a full circle moment knowing that my dad gave him a handwritten note to start the whole thing. And I think that's why Popovich wrote that. And the note later, I read it. It was unbelievable. It was exactly what you would expect to hear from a coach Popovich listing all the traits that my dad has, like a sense of humor, hard work ethic, positivity, and telling him that those are the traits that are going to get you through this. And so his message was, obviously great. And then Popovich told me right when we were about to do this sit down interview that that's not going to work. We're going to do this live third quarter, just like your dad would. So I had to go from thinking it was going to be some tape thing where all I was going to do is sit down with him and he was going to have something to say to now you're going to be on the court. I didn't even have a seat in the press box because I was supposed to be enjoying the game. I was in the stands and had to walk down to the court as soon as the buzzer rang, you just go out there and dodge cords and all that and didn't have an earpiece on to hear the truck. They just said go. And I think that's what was the most meaningful about it is knowing that it was Popovich's idea. Uh, it was a, the perfect tribute to um, just for my family to to see me out there knowing that my dad was going to be missing the playoffs just to get that nice positive momentum. The first couple of days of the treatment was huge. And then uh, knowing that my dad was going to try like hell to get back on the sideline so he could do another interview with Popovich, that's something that motivated him throughout his battle. And the first time he came back from leukemia was, so this is in April, that's like almost a year-long process. He came back the next March after the transplant, after the transplant and having pneumonia for 16 weeks. And so he was he went through hell in that, in that first time, and then he came back for one game. He made it back for one game in Chicago and then got 
and then leukemia, leukemia came back again with a vengeance. And so then he's battling the second time. That's when he did the 14 straight days of chemo for 24 hours, and we had to do a second transplant. And then for him to get through that that second time and then be on the sideline interviewing Greg Popovich again, I mean, I can't tell you how much that meant to my dad, but I know uh, it was definitely – probably one of the best victories he's ever had to set that goal to be back on sidelines interviewing him and getting to do it. And I think that's just uh, something that inspired a lot of people. Craig, I won't keep you too much longer. Um, I just wanted to pick up on an article that you wrote for Sports Illustrated at the back end of last year. Uh, and one of the things that you that caught my eye was how Brian Curtis came to you and, and he asked if you and your dad wanted to write a book about his life story and the relationship you had together. It's titled Living Out Loud, Sports, Cancer and the Things Worth Fighting For. Now, you said in the article that this gave you the opportunity to have more time with your dad and, and share and reminisce on some great moments. Was there a particular story that you both remembered while while working on that? I mean, honestly, it was everything our entire relationship but yeah our first father-son trip which was to san antonio we went to the western conference finals in 2003 and just traveled around arena to arena and cheered together when the series got extended to a game six and i think it was just my dad's someone that hated living in the past he hated talking about the past he was in the moment and future and so we never really had the chance to talk about any of that stuff. And I think what's interesting about this book is you're going to see two conflicting mindsets weave together a story that's not conflicting. And when I say conflicting, I mean my dad who wants to deny that he has this aggressive, terrible form of leukemia and just keep working and not let it affect his mind and honestly not even talk about it. Uh, I found out he had it a third time when I walked in to do an interview with HBO Real Sports. I literally walked in the house and hear him say to um, Bernie Goldberg that he has three to six months to live. I'm like, well, would have been nice to hear it from him, but I guess I know now. And so there's just a lot of frustration on my end, not knowing what was actually happening. And then him being the type of person where if you even talk about anything negative he just doesn't want to hear it he wants to stay focused on the positive and so I'm being told all the time to be positive but at the same time I'm hearing from the doctors how serious it is and I'm like we've got to like squeeze in some father-son time or I'm going to regret it the rest of my life like we have so much catching up to do because he's out in Houston I'm in Atlanta how am I gonna say all these things how am I gonna pick his brain like I need to know certain things that just to move forward. And I think the book gave us an opportunity to not only just tell the story we wanted to tell, but also, uh, as you said, look back into the past and talk about some of the things we've done together and what I appreciated about him and what he uh, appreciated about me and what he wanted to see me do later in life and um, just how much of our lives has been parallel because when you don't get to see someone a lot, you feel connected to them through your actions. And I think that that's something that always motivated me when I would go into a press room or drive home from 
a gym late at night is knowing that, you know what, one day it might be the two Sager men working together. And that is something that motivated me for probably the first four years of being in this business. And it wasn't until he got sick that it's, I had to kind of forge my own fork and do some other things and actually wrote a couple other books, but for the Falcons and stuff, but so much of my life was spent trying to get to that point where we would be a team because that's all I wanted to do. And I think that that book finally gave us the opportunity to, and it's a story that's better than either of us hoped for to get the book assignment. When you hear horrible news, like he has three to six months to live and somehow getting to throw out the first pitch at Wrigley. Uh, he covered the entire NBA playoffs from going back and forth from chemo treatment and platelet donations and blood transfusions. And then to go to the ESPYs, uh, winning the Jimmy V award an award that has meant so much to my family for years. I remember watching it for the first time with him and then to see him up there giving the same speech and to have all that in the book when you got the book and you're worried if you're even going to have the time to talk to him, then to get to write a book together and have all that positive stuff happening. I mean, it was, it was more than I could have ever asked for. You mentioned the ESPYs there and, and we've had some incredible speeches down the years. You mentioned Jim Valvano, Stuart Scott. Um, and I watched your dad's again the other day and it's, it's, it's powerful. It's emotional. It's important, I think as well. And, the the quote that stood out to everyone was he said time is something that cannot be bought it cannot be wagered with god and it's not in endless supply time is simply how you live your life um it seemed he never wanted to stop working that your dad's job was hugely important to him he's taught us a lot and i i really believe that when a young player met sega they thought to themselves you know i've made it to the nba exactly now that is i'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the one things he was able to do is be that guy where if he's interviewing you, it, it's a big moment. It's a big game. You balled out. You you were the hero of that game. And uh, there'll never be – I mean, maybe there will be, but I don't think there'll ever be anyone like that again. But that SB speech, I think we had the mindset going in as a family, and I think he just – everything we hoped – would be in that speech was and I was blown away by how perfect it was just seeing him that week I mean we had to take a private jet there not because we wanted to live the high life but because he couldn't be on a commercial airline because of his health and to see him stand up there with that much strength and to nail that that speech like he did and have power and have strength in his voice and project to a room full of people was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. And I mean, the speech is, is just, we wanted the, the Jimmy V award is an award that almost signifies our progress in the war against cancer. And I think every single year between Jimmy V uh, Stuart Scott, and now my dad, I think that that award, just based on what my dad brought to it, is now, it's known that that award means more every year. It's, you, 
the torch shines brighter each year. And so my dad's still holding the torch because someone else is going to win the Jimmy V in July, and then it's their turn. And I just think each year we're going to see uh, more awareness being raised, more money going into this foundation, more progress against cancer, and hopefully that award can continue to mean more and more and more. Now, I really appreciate your time tonight, Craig, and, and I just wanted to ask you one final question. And you just you just said it there that you don't think there'll be another Craig Sager. Of course, there won't be another Craig Sager. Um, <laughs> the way the media is now, though, and what you know about it, what your dad knows about it, could anyone do again what what he did in terms of getting the access, in terms of just basically forcing his will on an industry to become such a success? Do you think that can ever happen again? I think it can happen if someone uses social media the right way. I think that's the next platform. Someone can be the Craig Sager of social media somehow. Um, and that's if you just, if you're at these big games and you can get constant video and pretty much show that you're everywhere at once, I think you can do it. Uh, but it would take extreme, uh, skill understanding of timing and language and being a master at words i think your vocab would almost have to be your wardrobe and your ability to use language and just say the right things and be a constant relevant presence on social media you might be able to do it but i think right now because um, i just say it from that end where he, he signified the big moment in sports. I think if you can tap into that as always being on point with the biggest sports stories on Twitter and having access there, having videos and having it coming from your account, maybe. But you would also have to be a hell of a personality and you'd have to be able to do even more than just sports. You'd have to transcend it and it would be very difficult. But I do think someone can do it. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate your time, and I know it must be a difficult time for you right now. And I remember last year I was in uh, San Francisco in April, and it was my first chance to watch the Warriors. And your dad was there, um, and everyone, every time he walked around the court, everyone in the crowd waved at him. He was in the press room, and I was talking to a, an Asian guy, and uh, he must have been around 24, 25, and uh, during the break, the halftime break, he went in there and he, the first thing he wanted to do before anything else was to go and meet your dad and have a picture with him. And he gave him the time and I just thought that was was wonderful. Everyone wanted a picture with him, no, no matter where they worked, who they were, how old they were. So it was it was nice to see him at work. Yep, and that's what means a lot. Someone could meet him one time, someone might not have met him at all, but they appreciate the same things about him that I do. And I think that just means a lot to me because I know exactly who he is and I'm always going to know who he is. And it won't be hard to uh, just remember the lessons he taught everyone. Absolutely. No, it's an important message you're spreading and I appreciate your time, Craig. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Go Falcons. My thanks to Craig Sager Jr. for coming onto the US Sports Podcast. What I would like to do before I end the show is to play uh, in full Craig Sager's ESPY speech from last year. Considering where Craig Sager's health was at the time, it's an incredible speech. It's motivating, it's inspiring, and it's truly powerful. 
Uh, Craig Sager Jr. was obviously in the crowd with his family. So have a listen. Here's Craig Sager's SB speech. Well, first of all, thank you, Mr. Vice President, for the kind words and the struggles you have with your son, Bo. Um, your amazing fight, your determination, dedication, um, putting your whole career, your whole life forward to finding a cure for cancer. I am confident in you that one day soon we will wipe out cancer. First of all, I'd like to thank ESPN for this honor. Um, Jimmy V's inspirational metaphone, constant source of encouragement and inspiration. And it's always at my bedside in the hospital and I can listen to it anytime I want. So uh, my thoughts are with the Balvano family because this honor means a great deal to me. So thank you very much. I'd also like to thank my two families that are here. You saw their picture. First, my beloved bride, Stacy. She is my heaven on earth. In the darkest of moments, tears running down her cheeks, we embraced and we prayed. Please. Don't leave me, she pleaded. We can fight this together. There's no fear in love, and your love is my strength. My children, Casey, Craig, Krista, Riley, Ryan, my sister Candy, Stacy's mother, Mary Jo, my battle has been your battle. I would also like to thank my Turner Sports family. Many of them are here tonight. David Levy, Lenny Daniels, Craig Berry, Scooter Bertino, Matt Hong, Nate Smeltz. Your love and support since my first diagnosis has been incredible. And your willingness to adapt, to let me keep doing what I love is something I will never forget. And the truth is that the Turner family is just part of a bigger family. All of you, the sports family. Sports are who I am in my soul. They have guided my life. And I have had the good fortune to witness all of your amazing feats. And I am confident that I will continue to watch those amazing feats. I have spent most of the past year and a half at the most impactful cancer hospital in the world, MD Anderson in Houston. And many nights I don't get out of the hospital until well after midnight, and I always take the same walking path back to the hotel. The sidewalks wind through a maze of buildings, including the Texas Children's Hospital. Many nights, I'll stop, pause, and I'll go inside. And a few feet inside the hallway is this large model train display covered by glass. There are seven buttons on the outside. They activate the trains, 
the circus, the toys, and the trolley. And many nights alone, in the stillness and solitude of the hospital, I pushed those buttons. And I watched the trains as they disappear through the tunnel and emerge full steam on the other side. I watched the trains as they pass by the town square, the Dinosaur Canyon, the Pirates Cove, Santa Land, and the ice skating rink. And I sit there and I watch and I listen. I listen to the sounds of the circus, of the kids laughing, and of the train chugging along. Now, I don't know why I am so drawn to this train set. Perhaps it's my life coming full circle. Maybe it's just the kid inside all of us. Or perhaps it's a few minutes in my life that leukemia cannot take from me. The train actually takes two minutes and 20 seconds to make a full loop. But what is time really? When you are diagnosed with a terminal disease like cancer, leukemia, your perception of time changes. When doctors tell you you have three weeks to live, do you try to live a lifetime of moments in three weeks? Or do you say, the hell with three weeks? When doctors tell you that your only hope of survival is 14 straight days of intense chemotherapy, 24 hours a day? Do you sit there and count down the 336 hours? Or do you see each day as a blessing? Time is something that cannot be bought. It cannot be wagered with God. And it is not in endless supply. Time is simply how you live your life. I am not an expert on time or on cancer or on life itself. I'm a kid from the small Illinois town of Batavia who grew up on the Chicago Cubs and made sports his life's work. Although there's never been a day where it actually seemed like work. I have run with the Bulls in Pamplona. I have raced with Mario Andretti in Indianapolis. I have climbed the Great Wall of China. I have jumped out of airplanes over Kansas. I have wrestled gators in Florida. I have sailed the ocean with Ted Turner. I have swam with the oceans in the Caribbean. And I have interviewed Greg Popovich. <laughs> Mid-game spurs down seven. If I've learned anything through all of this, it's that each and every day is a canvas waiting to be painted. An opportunity for love, for fun, for living, for learning. To those of you out there who are suffering from cancer, facing adversity, I want you to know that your will to live and to fight cancer can make all the difference in the world. The way you think influences the way you feel, and the way you feel determines how you act. And to everybody out there, we are making progress, incredible progress. As the Vice President said, the Moonshot Program, we are going to find a cure for cancer. 
but we need your help. We must continue to donate. We must continue to fight. And we need, must continue to do this together. I am grateful to my parents, Coral and Al. They raised me with a positive outlook on life. I always see the glass half full. I see the beauty in others, and I see the hope for tomorrow. If we don't have hope and faith, we have nothing. Whatever I might have imagined a terminal diagnosis would do to my spirit, it summoned quite the opposite, the greatest appreciation for life itself. So I will never give up. And I will never give in. I will continue to keep fighting, sucking the marrow out of life as life sucks the marrow out of me. I will live my life full of love and full of fun. It's the only way I know how. Thank you and good night. unbelievable it's unbelievable when you listen to that what he says the way he strings the sentences together the way he leads that message because he is giving you a message everyone out there enjoy life embrace it fight for it laugh love live and to do what he did in the final months of his life to want to be around the nba to want to be at the arena around the fans with the players with the coaches with the security people, where can I find a story? How many people can I connect with today? I think whatever profession we're in, in life, we can all learn from that lesson and that attitude, that approach to our job and our work and our lives, the people around us. To be able to speak at the ESPYs, to be able to continue to work through the illness, to want to go and cover games, to want to go and see people, to put those suits on, just to be himself, Work was his refuge. The NBA was his love. More than anything else, I think he wanted to be at work. He wanted to be covering the stories around the game, talking to the fans, being around the players, and to ignore everything that was going on at the time with his health and to want to be on that sideline, talking to everyone around the game. I just think that's it's so inspiring. Craig Sager Jr. shared some really fascinating stories, some very funny stories as well. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, on the US Sports Podcast today. Just a quick reminder, you can find the show on its official page on Audio Boom. You can also go to iTunes and download and subscribe on there. And if you've got any questions for me, uh, if you've got any requests, any questions to the guests we've had so far, I'm on Twitter at Max underscore Whittle. That's W-H-I-T-T-L-E. On the US Sports Podcast next week, we will be previewing Super Bowl 51 with Craig's Atlanta Falcons as they take on the New England Patriots. I look forward to that. So until next time, thank you for listening and I'll speak to you next week. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.